Dear friends, let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 6. We'll be in verses 17 through 19 starting out, but this will only be an introduction. Let's go ahead and look at that passage beginning in verse 17 of Luke chapter 6. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem in the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And we talked about what's happening here in the last sermon, this idea where Jesus was, was calling his 12 disciples and they were going to go out forward and we saw this idea that was communicated there of just as you had the 12 tribes of Israel that went out into the wilderness and then into the promised land and defeated those that were there, cleansed the land. You have that idea happening now. Remember that Jesus is the one who dwelt among us. Jesus is the one who is tabernacling among the people. So just as you had the 12 tribes of Israel surrounding the ark where God was dwelling with them, you have that idea here with Jesus. And John communicated that idea as we've seen and discussed many times previously in John chapter 1. This idea of Jesus dwelling with the people and he is using there a Greek word which is the same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint which is tabernacle. John was communicating a spiritual idea about Jesus. That was the place in the Old Testament where God was dwelling amongst them, amongst the 12 tribes, there where the ark was, there in the tabernacle, in the most holy place. And you have God dwelling with us here, Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's going forward at this time, and he is doing what God prophesied that he would do. That the child of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He is going forward and he is doing that. That idea is being communicated here in the miracles that he is doing. Now he is communicating physically what he does spiritually. And granting people the ability to live. Such as with Lazarus. Granting people the ability to walk like the man who was lame. That was brought down through the ceiling where we saw that. That's the idea prior to our conversion... We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Prior to our conversion, we were not making any movement forward spiritually. Paul goes so far in Romans 3 as to say, no one does good. That doesn't mean no one anywhere at any time has ever done anything good, but it means man in his natural state is totally depraved, not as bad as he can be, but unable to do anything good by God's standards. That's the key talk about good and bad righteousness unrighteousness good and evil you've got to remember what standard are we looking at are we looking at a worldly standard or are we looking at God's standard by God's standard none of us did anything good but Jesus is communicating what he does spiritually for people through his life death and resurrection through the work of the word and the spirit through these miracles that are happening so that's what's happening here there's Great popularity around the ministry of Jesus. Many are gathering around him. Imagine that if there was someone that was just healing people and you were someone who had been crippled 
your entire life where you had someone you loved or you cared about. You would be bringing them to that person. That's the idea of what's happening here. And so Jesus is healing people, this great popularity that is happening here. And this is what we know, know, this is what is known as the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Level Place. Now, most likely, this is the exact same sermon that was given at the Sermon on the Mount. And you might say, well, how can the Sermon on the Plain be the same as the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first off, it might not be. It might not be the same one. This might be the same sermon that he has given many times. Most likely, he did repeat many things. But both Matthew and Luke most likely did not take the entirety of his sermon, but took specific points out of it to communicate certain ideas. And we have Luke here grabbing four things, four blessings, and four woes, and they're all connected with each other. The first, second, third, and fourth blessing all connect with the first, second, third, and fourth woe. And that's actually how I'm going to break up this, this, this sermon, these sermons in, in this way. Let me go ahead and read through that, and I'll make a few more comments about the passage. But let's look at these blessings and woes we have beginning in verse 20 he says and he lifted up his eyes and on his disciples and said blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the son of man Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Then beginning in verse 24, we have the four woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And we have him giving this sermon, as I said earlier, as, as Luke says, on this level place. This doesn't mean that he was on a plane like we have here in Texas. It just means that this is an area that was leveled out, which is where he would be able to stand if he was teaching for teaching other people. So I say that to say this doesn't necessarily mean it's in a different place than he was teaching in Matthew. We don't know for sure. But it's not relevant here. What is relevant is these four areas. So in verse 20 and 24, you have him dealing with the idea of wealth. Verse 21 and 25, you have him dealing with the idea of hunger. Verse 21 and 25, you have him dealing with the idea of joy. And lastly, in verse 22 and 26, he deals with that of reputation. One is a blessing and one is a woe or a a curse. And so since he's connecting them like this, I thought this would be a good way to walk through these. And so the next four sermons are going to deal with each of these first four beatitudes, these first four blessings, and we're going to connect with it the corresponding woe. So this morning, we're going to walk through verses 20 and 24, which is on the concept of wealth. That's where I want us to park. That's where I want us to hang out this morning And that's the question that I want to ask you. I want you to ponder this question. I want you to consider this idea that I believe 
this is what we are supposed to walk away from reading this blessing and this woe. And the question is, where is your wealth? Where is your, your wealth? Another way that we could see this, that we could understand it, is how Jesus communicated it, which is where is your, your treasure? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Let's look at verse 20 and then verse 24. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And verse 24 says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Where's your wealth? What, what is it that you, you dream of, that you aspire towards, that, that, you, that, you, that you cherish most of all? What, what is it that occupies your mind, your, your dreams, your, your, your daydreams? What, where, where is the focus of your attention? Is, is it upon that which is temporal? Is it upon that which is the, the things of this world? Is it upon that which is eternal? For you live in this world, but as you know, this world is not your home. This, this world is not your eternity. It's just but where you are now, and the Lord would have you to live according to his will now, to accomplish his purpose to do that which, dear friends, is, is best for you. That which is best for your neighbor. That which is best for your family. That which is best for your community and for your culture. There's a great many ways in which this passage has been approached. There's a very simplistic way that you can look at this passage. And you can look at it as talking about money and possessions. And it certainly is talking about money and possessions. That's how we would calculate wealth that's how we would understand wealth so we can't dismiss that idea so if you're someone with by this perspective the simplistic idea if you're someone who is wealthy you're someone who has much money you're someone who has many possessions then woe to you woe to you because your wealth is demonstrating your low spiritual state however if you're one who is poor one who doesn't have much money, one who doesn't have many possessions, then you're blessed. Blessed are you because you have few possessions. A very simplistic way of looking at it. The question you have to ask yourself in such an approach is why, by what standard? What standard are we using to determine whether someone is wealthy or Poor. You could look around and say, well, someone that's wealthy, it's someone that makes six figures. Someone that makes six figures might say, well, it's someone that makes maybe seven figures. It's, it's this person over here that has more than I do. That's the person that is rich. Because I could look at myself and see all the things that I don't have and imagine how if I had these things, then I would really be wealthy. Is that how it works, though? The person that desires wealth, the person that desires to gain great possessions. What is it that, that Rockefeller said when he was asked how much money he desires to have? He said, just one dollar more. Just one dollar more. One of the wealthiest men that ever lived in, in their country. He controlled the oil and gas in the country at that time. 
What standard are we using in determining whether someone is rich or poor? What's our, our plumb line as to whether someone is wealthy or if they're impoverished? Because we need to decide where are we at on this. Are we being blessed or are we being given a woe? You might say, well, we know. We know who's rich. We know who's poor. I've had this conversation with us. You, you just know. You can look at the standards that our government sets up. You can look at the, the so-called poverty line. So is that our standard? Is it whatever culture we're in? Do we just look at the culture that we're in and look at the normal understood standard of wealth in that culture to determine whether or not someone is under the blessing or under the woe? Or is it more complicated? Am I, am I then to even compare not just within my culture, but to everyone on the entire planet, to look at the standard of living that everyone on the entire planet is in to determine whether or not someone is wealthy or whether or not they are impoverished. Because there's many in other cultures that are considered wealthy. They have a much lower standard of living than some of the most impoverished people in our culture. I spent a couple weeks in Costa Rica. That, that's a reality, friends. That which is considered upper middle class in Costa Rica is not the same as it is here. Neither your income nor the house that you drive. I said that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> the house that you live in. I almost tried to pull that back. There's no way. I'm not talking about an RV. Those pushing this idea of the redistribution of wealth in this culture, pushing socialistic ideas of taking from one and, and giving to the other in this culture aren't really thinking this through. If this is true, if merely because someone has more possessions than you, then they are required to give their possessions to you, if not really thought this through, globally or internationally, not really considered the fact that you are living in one of the most prosperous, probably the most prosperous culture that has ever existed. It's so easy. It's so easy to be benevolent with other people's possessions. It's, it's so easy to be benevolent with, with other people's money. What standard do we use? What standard do we use to determine whether or not someone is wealthy or poor? We can take it even further. Are we, are we going to consider wealth not just within this culture, not just within this time period in the world where we are now with other cultures? Are we going to even consider this historically? That some of the more impoverished people within our culture, those that are falling below the poverty line, are living better than many that were in royalty in times past. It's really interesting how we have these devices. You know, if I, if I have this laptop, then I can sit on the plane, and then I, you know, I, you know I, can, I can have a laptop and I can get my work done at other times. And it's funny how things just begin to fill in during those spaces. Well, if I have a, a mixer or I have this appliance or that appliance, it's going to give me so much more time, and we just become accustomed to whatever conveniences we have and don't realize that we have 
at our disposal just a vast array of servants that are there within our households that we can just utilize, that we have in our hands devices that can access all kinds of information. Yes, there's a great amount of time that's wasted on these devices, but mark this, the, the, the access to information that we have in this time is absolutely incredible. We are in a time that is like that of the printing press where information is spreading and easily spread very quickly. The things I've been able to just access online quickly that I never would have been able to touch. A dishwasher breaking, something that normally would have required someone to come over to shell out a few hundred dollars for the person to come and to fix it. I'm able to watch a quick video and say, oh, I could do that. That part's $10. It's over and over. We're able to just access so much we are living in such ease at this time we have so much wealth that we don't even realize what we have consider this ease even of travel the ease even of, of just going down i went down to central america flew right back up yes plane tickets are higher than maybe they were two years ago but they're not bad they're not bad. A few hundred dollars brought me down there. A few hundred dollars brought me back. Incredible the times in which we're living. So we need to be cautious. We need to be cautious in just arbitrarily assigning wealth and poverty in this. Because I would say this. There's not many of us that by a historical standard aren't extremely wealthy, aren't extremely blessed. I would point even to this, the access of the scriptures. The ease in which you can just grab them. You can just look at them on a device. The ease in which you can read them. Do you know that, dear friends? So, so few Christians in history had the scriptures in their language in a portable fashion where they could walk it around. You don't think of books as being technology, but the truth is, it wasn't that long ago that they were invented. People imagine walking around with scrolls. No. They're not very portable. Incredible technology that we've seen over the last few centuries. So none of us can walk away from this passage and just say, well, this is talking about other people. This isn't talking about me, I am one who is poor and I'm okay, or I'm just going to look at those that are in a higher standing. We are incredibly blessed. The question we have to ask ourselves is where is your wealth? Where is your treasure? What is it that you strive after? What is it that is your heart's desire? What you have, what the Lord's given to you, what you're to be a steward over, that's what he's placed in your care. We have the It's God's Money class. It, Gerald does an excellent job in that class of walking through the, this idea of, of you are a steward. This idea of a steward is one who, who was a manager, one who a Lord would, would put over something in particular, and they were to manage that. They, they didn't own it themselves. That's how we're to understand our possessions, how we're to understand our, our influence. I would understand what, what opportunities the Lord gives to us. The Bible's full of people 
that by the standards of their day were extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. Not, not a little bit wealthy. Some of the most wealthy people on the planet at that time. We don't find the Lord condemning them in their day. We don't need to take the, the words of Jesus in this passage and go back and condemn someone like Noah who was absolutely wealthy. For him to build the vessel that he did at that time, for him to pull that many resources together and to create what the Lord commanded him to create in the ark required a great amount of wealth, a great amount of power and, and influence. He's not condemned for that. In fact, he is praised for using what the Lord's given him for the glory of God, for being obedient to God with what the Lord had given to him. Had he not been obedient? Had he not been obedient with the wealth the Lord had given him? Had he not been obedient with the commands the Lord had given him at that time? We would have nothing but fish at this time. We would have nothing but sea creatures. None of you would be here. The humans would not have survived. The land animals would not have survived. Abraham's another one. He was extremely wealthy. You look at the list, you don't think of it when you're reading through and you see how many camels he had, how many servants he had. How much of this animal and that animal? Do you understand it by the historical standard at that time? He was very powerful. He was very wealthy. He didn't act powerful at times. He was very timid at certain times in his life. We see his deficiencies. But he was extremely, extremely wealthy. We see another one in the New Testament. We could cover others, but these are just a few. Joseph of Arimathea, men who had great wealth at his disposal. And we see Joseph of Arimathea at one point carrying a very large amount of herbs. And you might not think anything when you read of it. He, he's bringing these for the burial of Christ's body to prepare the body of Jesus for his burial. But if you were in that time period, you understand what he held in his hand was very valuable. The value of what he carried at that time was between 100000 and $150,000. Very valuable, very significant gift that he had given. We further see his wealth in the fact that he had a, the tomb that Jesus borrowed. Just needed it for a few days, that was it. But the fact that he had it at his disposal, that was not normal. This was a wealthy man. It's very clear that he was a wealthy and influential man. And you see... These men who were wealthy and who were godly, who used what the Lord gave them for the glory of God. So it's not just about calculating possessions. It's not about just putting someone in a particular tax bracket as though the absence of wealth is in some way granting you righteousness. Or the possession of wealth is in some way making you unrighteous and evil. And furthermore, we're not to, to just purposely manufacture wealth in our lives or, or purposely place constraints on our families just for the sake of doing it. I, I've known those as we've gone through studies in the past and we see those in missionaries that have struggled at certain times that, well, that we should live in the same way. Well, maybe if you're in those circumstances... If you're living in this culture, you should live as people are living in this culture, but not for the purpose of sinning. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is communicating an idea that we see in the Old Testament. This isn't the first time this idea is communicated in the scriptures. Proverbs 30 and verses 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. The writer here is communicating the idea that he must not be a slave to his possessions. He's praying to the Lord that he not be put in a a situation where he's tempted to steal, that he not have possessions in such a way that it is a distraction from God, that he not have possessions that become an idol to him. Those who have become poor for the sake of the kingdom are rich in the Lord, are blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who would hold even what the Lord gives to them with an open hand. The Lord grants you possessions. You must hold them, dear friends, with a hand that is open. And your hand must be using them in a way that glorifies God in a way that is consistent with your profession in Christ Jesus. Because this is consistent with what we see in Christ, with the good news of Jesus Christ, with the message of Christ Jesus. We saw this in Luke 4, this passage from Isaiah was quoted. Isaiah 61 and verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the, pa- to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of God. This is what was stated when Christ was denied there in Lazarus at the synagogue. And Christ has brought good news to the poor. For humanity was poor in righteousness. Humanity was born dead in his trespasses and sins. There is nothing that all the strength of the flesh, that all the wealth of this world could have done to in any way raise a man's righteousness before God. Man's religion is full of this idea. We saw this in Costa Rica so much. This Roman Catholicism had so affected that culture. And this idea of merely paying something, of paying an indulgence, of acting in certain ways of righteousness to in some way remove your sins. Did we not see that in Hebrews earlier? As though Christ would need to be sacrificed again and again and again. No, he was sacrificed once And for all, and man's religion will tell you there needs to be continually a sacrifice, that the wrath of God needs to continually be appeased. Is that not what's communicated in the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church? They communicate this idea that all that are there, the priest is there calling Christ to be sacrificed once again for those that are there. No, the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is 
finished. He was sacrificed once and for all. For those that were poor. Those that were lacking in righteousness. Those that were unable to help themselves do anything. Their best efforts insufficient. All of their wealth insufficient. All of their religious deeds insufficient. In no way raising their standard Gnaw as they would claw, as they would work, as they would strive, as they would seek to raise their standard of righteousness through their efforts. Just made their situation worse. Made their situation even more significant. Can you imagine this? I gave this illustration many times in in Costa Rica as as I talked, but imagine this idea of, of bribing a judge. I said, imagine you stand before a judge for for breaking the law. You violated it. You've stolen a car, let's say, and you're standing before the judge and you say, I'm sorry for what I've done. Imagine you walked up and you put a thousand colones up there on the bench and said, there you go, this should take care of it. A thousand colones is about a dollar fifty. That would be offensive. So you have two problems there. You've tried to bribe the judge, which is breaking the law. And then furthermore, you've tried to bribe the judge with something that is very offensive, something that is not of any value. And it's even worse for those that seek to gain a righteousness before God through their own efforts, through their own works. That, that is every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world is man trying to make himself right before God through his actions. Is man going up and trying to bribe God and say, look, I did this. It doesn't matter how much good you've done. If you're brought to court for speeding, you can't stand in front of the judge and tell the judge all the good things you've done. It's totally irrelevant. It does nothing to help you for breaking the law. You must pay the fine. Same is true with the Lord. You can't bribe the Lord with your good works, with your good efforts. With all of man's religion, it doesn't matter how many times a day you pray. It doesn't matter how many good deeds, how many alms you give to the poor. These are all good things to do. But they in no way raise your standard of righteousness. They in no way deal with your problem of sin. That is the good news to the poor that Isaiah is speaking of. That is the good news that Jesus is speaking of in Luke 4. That is the good news that is there. That is the only good news that is there because the bad news is we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how we are born. We have broken God's law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this. We have not only just broken the law outwardly. That's not the only requirement. God is looking at your mind. God's looking at your heart. Someone can say, I haven't broken the seventh commandment. I haven't committed adultery. Jesus says, if you look upon a woman with lustful intent, you're guilty of adultery already in your heart. Someone says, you know, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I, I haven't killed anyone. That always comes up as an excuse. Jesus says, if you have unrighteous anger towards someone, you're guilty of murder. Jesus says, if you call someone empty-headed, you are worthy of the hellfire. Just calling someone empty-headed. God's looking at the heart. 
because looking at the mind, when you look to someone and you say, you are, you are good for nothing, your brains are worthless, you are saying the world would be better if you didn't exist. My life would be so much better if you weren't anywhere around me. Jesus is saying, you're murdering that person in your heart. You are not respecting one who is made in the image of God, one you, you are called to respect, one you are called to love. When you hear this for the first time, this can be startling. You can say, well, how's anyone going to be saved? No one's perfect. That's the point. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. None is righteous. No one's righteous. That's our problem. There's one means that God has given whereby you can be saved. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is by recognizing the fact that you are unrighteous. You are unable to help your situation. You are unable to do anything worthwhile to change your standing with God. And in your hopelessness, in your poverty spiritually, you see that the Lord has given a means. The Lord Jesus Christ. He never sinned. He is the perfect Lamb of God. He is the one that was promised, that was prophesied from early in the Scriptures. The Messiah that would come forward. The one that would accomplish all that is necessary. That the poor could be blessed. It's there in Christ Jesus. We must do as we have sung in the hymn so many times. It's necessary that you see your need of him, that you see your need of Jesus. That you see that Jesus took upon himself the consequences of sin, that you can be saved if you will but believe in him. And Jesus fulfilled the law in every respect. All of these laws that I've talked about and many more that we have broken, that we have not kept. Jesus kept. And Jesus kept that, that if you believe upon him, you will be granted his righteousness. You will have peace with God. You can talk with so many in so many different religions, and, and you can say, well, will you go to heaven? They say, well, I hope that I will. Do you have peace with God? I hope that I have peace with God. It is there at the beginning of Romans 5. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you are, in fact, in Christ Jesus. And someone will say, so it doesn't matter how you live. That's how Christianity works. It doesn't matter how you live now. You're going to heaven. It doesn't matter how you live. No. No, Jesus is giving us instruction here. And these blessings and woes these blessings and woes of how it is we are to live our lives, instructions on how it is we are to prioritize our possessions, prioritize what the Lord's given to us to, to steward, that our treasure may not be comprised and built up of that which will be destroyed, of that which will have no eternal value, Dear friends, there, there is no greater joy than you can have 
than to walk in righteousness and holiness for Jesus Christ. There's no greater joy you can have than to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's look at what Jesus says about wealth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Where is your treasure? What is it that you desire? For that which the Lord has given to you, if you use that for eternal purposes, if you use what he's given to you for his glory, it has significance beyond this life. It is good for you in this life to live in that way. That's why God's given us his law. He's given us his law because this is the best way for us to live. This is the way in which we were designed to exist and to live. This is the way of true joy. This is the way of true happiness. I want to ask you this question in considering this passage. Because this is a familiar passage. You've heard this passage. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Have you ever noticed that Jesus' instruction on anxiety follows right after this passage? Look at what he says there beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies in the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There is no possession on this earth. There is no good thing upon this earth that was designed to be your Messiah. That was designed to be what only Christ can be. And there is a direct connection between what you treasure in this world 
what you love in this world, what you desire in this world, and where your anxiety lies. These two passages are connected for that reason. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The love of this world is greatly connected to anxiety. We are not designed to be those that are lovers of this world. But God, the Lord gives you blessings. The Lord gives you good things. You hold those with an open hand. You use them for God's purpose and for his glory. Because Jesus here is talking to apostles, apostles that we just talked through last week. And I want to review some of the things that we talked about last week that we are seeing even out of tradition. He is talking to these men, most of which are going to lay their life down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are going to be men who would not be martyred if they only would have recanted, if they only would have refused to preach the gospel, if they only would have refused to live as Christians, if they only at times would have been willing to merely take a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord and throw it into the fire over an icon of Caesar. It is all that would have been required for some of them just to merely declare Caesar is Lord. Oh, the ways we don't understand when Paul says that Jesus is Lord and we try to make that into a little prayer that we just have someone say after us. Paul was saying what was countercultural. Paul is saying what is contrary to what was required to live and be healthy in his culture at the time. For his culture said, Caesar is Lord. You could worship whatever God you wanted to worship. With There were a few exceptions, but you just had to respect Caesar. You just had to recognize the, the lordship of Caesar. And Jews were given a special dispensation in this for a while, because they knew the Jews would fight them. And Christians were given a special dispensation in this for a little while as well. And that began to be repealed it really became repealed under Nero. We see Peter being martyred. There was a great fire in Rome, and Nero was going half crazy at the time. And he chose to blame the Christians, like many autocrats will do. They will suffer under the economy that they've created that is not running very efficiently. They have problems in how things are being managed. And so they will pick a group to blame Blame for what has happened. There was a great fire in Rome. Much of the city was burnt down. Many people were angry. So Nero blamed the Christians. And it is said that Peter was crucified upside down around 64 AD. Andrew, Andrew was martyred through by, the crucif uh, by crucifixion in the Greek city of Patras in 60 AD said he was placed on an X-shaped cross, hence the name St. Andrew's Cross. James, one of the first apostles to be martyred, we see that in the book of Acts. He was struck down by Herod because of his profession to Jesus. Philip, said to be beheaded in about 80 AD. Bartholomew was said to have been beheaded as well. Thomas is said to have been stabbed with spears in India in 72. 
A.D., the gospel had actually gone that far out. It is incredible, absolutely incredible, when you see the places the gospel went, how far the gospel went, where we see the gospel in that first century going up into Spain, into France, into Britain, going into these very pagan areas, going eastward all the way into India. And as we stated earlier, it was because of the Greek language that had spread, the Koine Greek language had spread so far that they were able to communicate this message. The New Testament's written in that language for that reason. They were traveling on these roads created by the Romans. Early church fathers say that Matthew was burned, stabbed, stoned, and beheaded. They were very angry with him at the time. James, the son of Alphaeus, is said to have been pushed down while preaching at the temple. He was beaten in the head with a fuller's club, and then he was stoned. Jude is said to have been struck down with an axe. Simon the Zealot is said to have been martyred. It's not clear how he was martyred, though. That's, that's 10 of the 12. Judas committed suicide, we know. And it's said that John died of natural causes, though there were multiple attempts to take his life. These men knew what it was to be poor and the things of the world. They, they knew what it was to be willing to let go of the comforts of this life, to be willing to let go of their possessions in this life, to let go of their, their freedoms that they have. The ways we can talk about our, our freedoms. We, we do. I appreciate the freedoms I have in this country. I appreciate most especially the freedoms that we have in this great and beautiful state of, of Texas. But we must use even that which we're given in our, our freedom for the glory of God, for freedoms, not just for the purpose of, of freedom, but for it's a blessing the Lord has given to us. It is, it is a resource that we have. There is a book that I read many years back. It was of a missionary in China. It was called Have We No Rights? And she began to talk about the many things that for the purpose of the gospel, the purpose of bringing the gospel into inland China, things that had to be laid down, even, even normal comforts of food that people are accustomed to eating, comforts of living, the many rights that these people had that they laid down, that the gospel would go forward into this area, that it would press forward, holding the wealth that the Lord had given them with an open hand, willing to use it for the purpose the Lord had given to them. Do we not see this most especially in the life of Christ Jesus? Paul communicates this idea in, in many, many different ways. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We see this even in the example of Jesus Christ. We saw this just a few chapters back. Christ being born 
there in a manger, Christ being born in an area where animals were fed. Yes, he had a place to lay down. Yes, he had a place that was safe. This, this was not a castle. This was not a palace. Christ became poor on our sake. Christ did what Adam didn't do. Christ fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Unlike Adam that was in the lush garden. All the bounty that was around him, he could eat whatever that he had wanted with the exception of the one tree he shouldn't eat from, which is the tree that he ate from. So Christ became poor on our behalf. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that is a promise we have before us there. Every knee shall bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. Dear friend, it is so crucial that that confession happens in this life. It, it is so crucial to you that your faith is expressed in Jesus Christ in this life. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no intermediary, intermit, there is no place where you will go when you die. And the Lord will just cleanse you at that time as though because of your suffering you could in some way deal with your own sins. No, it required Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus to assume the flesh, taking on this impoverished state taking on this life as a human, that he would take upon himself the fullness of the consequences of sin. Only there, if, if in some way you could suffer and your sins be dealt with, Christ would not need to come. No, Christ even set this example for us on how it is we should be interacting with what the Lord even gives to us, that we would desire even to use the wealth that we're given for the glory of God, that we would desire even to use it for the proclamation of the gospel. For there is a blessing there. There is a blessing there in being one that holds not on to the world, one that is poor in the things of this world, not, not purposely made that way because you are not going to work or you're being lazy for some reason. That's not what we're talking about. You can be one who is wealthy but does not hold on to these things, that is willing to give them up for Christ, is willing to use what the Lord gives you for his purpose, for his glory. 
for the woe is there. Woe to you who are rich, who have received your consolation. Woe to you who cling to this world as though it is your home. Woe to you who cling to that which lasts not, that which is not e- eternal. Dear friends, dear church, my, my prayer is that we would see the life that we've given and take it with seriousness. That, that we would be, be mindful of how it is that we are spending our time, how it is that we are spending our attention. We would recognize the greatness of the glory of what we have gained in Christ Jesus, the beauty of what Christ has given to us. And we would find what Christ offers to be more beautiful than what the entirety of the wealth of this world could give to us. And that we would use our time and our resources for the glory of God. That we would desire that the name of Jesus be known. That we would use the time that the Lord has given to us for that purpose. That we would see our lives and the time that we have here as but temporary. As an opportunity now to serve the Lord. As an opportunity now to make the name of Christ known. As an opportunity now to glorify God with what he has given to us. For there is great peace in that. There is great rest. There is great hope. In Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Christ has given you. Christ has purchased this for you. He's purchased for you righteousness. He's purchased for you the ability to walk in righteousness. It's what you can do now, dear friends. Dear church, dear, dear friends, you can, you can walk in obedience. Let not the things of this world be an anchor upon your spiritual life. Hold them but with an open hand and use them the glory of God, trusting in Christ, Christ alone. Christ alone, the one who has granted us life and life.